morning. Well, as Rob read, we are in uh, Luke chapter 10, the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Um, typically today, if somebody asks you, say, well, what is a Good Samaritan? Good Samaritan is somebody that does something that's, that's good. You know, they, they did a good deed, perhaps when others wouldn't. That's what a Good Samaritan is. And that would really miss the point of what Jesus is saying. That's not what the Good Samaritan is. There's certainly an application there. No doubt a Good Samaritan is someone who does a good deed. But when we get the context here, beginning in verse 25, it's a lawyer that stands up. A lawyer is a scribe. This is not a, a litigation attorney. Uh, don't see him as, as one dressed in a slick suit and, a, and a, a briefcase. This is an expert in Jewish law, a scribe. And if he stands up here, he stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test. That means they're all sitting uh, Jesus, a rabbi, would typically sit down with his people. He would sit and, and preach. That's how preaching was done then. In fact, you can, we could go back to the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus led his group up on the mountain, and he sat down and he taught them. It was the typical posture. So imagine everyone sitting, and this guy stands up, maybe out of protest a bit. He's not happy with what he's hearing. He's an expert in the Jewish law. It's not easy for experts, trained people, uh, today, we would call them people with degrees from, uh, from college and higher education to sit and listen to what would be perceived here as a, uh, a peasant from Nazareth, Jesus. That's where he was from. Uh, he's the rabbi. People are gathering around him. This lawyer is sitting. And at this point, he stands up, wants to put Jesus to the test. We don't know if it's a sarcastic test. We don't know that if he's just tired of listening to Jesus' words and he wants to, to embarrass him, or if he's maybe of this humility of heart wanting to get to the bottom line. Jesus stands up, teacher, didaskalos, one who gives instruction, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that, that is true to all people. We have eternity in our hearts. We want to know what's going to happen to us. Uh, some people like to put that question off. We don't want to think about it. I'm a good person. If there's a God, he or she will consider how good I am and bring me to where he is, wherever that may be. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. That's a, it's a man-made heresy to come up with the idea that you're good enough to be in heaven if there is one. This is a lawyer. This is a scribe, expert in the law, asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but... It's, an, it's a strange question because he says, what do I do to inherit? As someone who might inherit something, you don't do anything, do you? An inheritance comes to you. It's due to you, and you don't do anything to get an inheritance other than perhaps be the firstborn. Uh, so he wants to know, what do I do to receive an inheritance? Everything's mixed up in his question. And if he's an expert in the Jewish law, he should know. And so, Jesus takes this particular situation, knowing who he's talking to, and does not answer the way you and I would answer. If someone comes to us and said, hey, so-and-so, Lance, how can I have eternal life? Well, I'm going to launch off into my own little spiel of how I lead someone to the gospel of salvation. If they're people that are highly educated, I might take them a little bit differently than, than if it's a child. This man is an expert in Jewish law, and he wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? Apparently, he thinks it's something about works because he wants to know what I do. Incidentally, if we go back to, uh, to verse 21 in chapter 10, Jesus has just said this about the scribes. In chapter 10, verse 21, it says, At that very time, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. That's the things of salvation from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Jesus has been preaching on the, on the countryside for a couple of years at this point. And it's the scribes, the experts in the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those with long flowing robes, those with great education, those that everyone holds high and mighty, that Jesus is praising God the Father. Father, thank you for hiding the things of salvation from the high and mighty conceited and arrogant people. Thank you, Father, for hiding it from them. The Son of God is pleased that God the Father has hidden this from things like this lawyer. But he's praising God that he's revealed them to infants, 
That's not little babies that come out of mama's womb a week prior. That's people with humility. Jesus is praising God. Thank you for hiding this, from hiding this from the high and mighty and, from, and for revealing it to the meek. Jesus loves the meek, the gentle. Those who would come to him and say, Lord, I don't understand. Will you help me understand? Versus those who come to him going, Lord, I don't believe anything about your word. Uh, I believe in this. I've been to the university. I know this, this, and this. I gave you an example when I preached that a couple weeks ago from a young woman in our church who's reading the Bible for the first time. And she came across in the book of Numbers uh, this man named Balaam, this false prophet named Balaam, whose donkey spoke to him. And she said, she, we were uh, together, and she said, I read about a donkey that talks. And the attitude just spoke volumes to me of, uh, there's a donkey that's, it wasn't. I'm reading the Bible, and you want me to believe a Bible that says a donkey talks? Give me a break. There's a major difference between the two. If God created a donkey, he can make the donkey talk. And it was part of the judgment in the context anyway. If you're being spoken to by a donkey, and you're talking back to the donkey, folks, you are under God's judgment. Just don't talk back. Chalk it up as a bad pizza. It was judgment. There's a difference in attitude, and God is, Jesus is saying, God, thank you for hiding it from these people. It's this very person, this high and mighty lawyer who has stood up to question or test Jesus. Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, and Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? I mean, you're an expert in the law. If you know the law of God, you tell me. So the man responds. Verse 27, he answered by quoting two Bible passages, not together, but two passages. One is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It's called the great Shema because it begins with the, the Hebrew word Shema, which means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he quotes that. Great passage to quote. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18, completely separated from it, which says, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus asks him in return, he says, how can I have eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me, what does the law say? And he quotes very appropriately, love God and love your neighbor. You know, there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. 600. How are you on memorizing those laws? I mean, how, how many of you, if I just said, quote the Ten Commandments, you'd be going, all right, I can do that. How many are going to make a 50 on that? Maybe a 60, an 80, you get 8 out of 10. The Ten Commandments sum up all the laws of the Bible, and these two commandments sum up the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. No other gods before me. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. First four commandments have to do with man's attitude towards God, man's relationship, a vertical relationship, man to God. The next six commandments, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. All of these are more of a horizontal relationship, man to man. Love God, love man. See? You do it this way, you got a cross, right? There it is. So he sums it up. In fact, this question is, is, will be asked to Jesus later on, uh, two days before Jesus dies, and recorded in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, where another scribe comes up to Jesus and says, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus quotes the same ones. Here's the biggest problem here. Love God, love people. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Not rocket science, we would say. How are you doing on the first one? Let's get, the, let's get the gist of it. You shall love the Lord your God. That is Yahweh your Elohim. His name, his designation. His name is Yahweh, the eternally existing one who is your God and creator. You shall love him with some of your heart, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. So we might say the heart and soul has to do with uh, our emotions. We are to love God with all of our emotions. That's what the heart is. I, I point to the, to the bodily organ, but it's not talking about the, 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 this organ that beats. The heart is the heart of man. 
the heart of woman, the heart of a human being. Everything you are, love God with that. And that's the commandment, all of it. And with your soul, the essence of your being. Not just a little bit here and a little bit there. All of you. And with all of your strength. That might mean with, with everything you're able to do physically for God. Whether it's sing, give money, give service. All of it. And with your mind. That would be an, an intellectual ascent to God. You intellectually understand that there must be a God. In fact, the only explanation for how there can be something and not nothing is that there is a God, a first cause, an eternal creator. The answer that usually follows is, well, where did he come from? Well, that's a dumb question because by definition, that which is eternal has no beginning. There has to be an eternal being for the first thing that was a thing to get started. We think of time and space. Time and space are something. You have to have space to put the thing in. Space didn't exist without God. God was always there. Since we understand that logically and we love Him with our mind, our heart, soul, strength, and mind. How are you doing with that first one? No amens, huh? So like me, you failed at the first thing God requires. Let me just give a suggestion is that there are two ways of salvation. Two ways. There's two ways to be saved. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Some of you are waiting to get up. This guy's a heretic. There are two ways. We know that Jesus is the only way, but you don't need Jesus if you can keep the law. Just perfectly, don't you? So that's the first way. Keep God's law, never make a single mistake, and you have no need for a Savior. That is an avenue of salvation. But what's the problem? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And everyone's willing to admit that. We know that we're all imperfect. So the only way to be saved is for someone to save us. Because we miss the first one. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So verse 28, he said to him, uh, you have answered correctly. The man quoted from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. He quoted from Leviticus 19, 18. That's how you have eternal life. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Good answer. Do this and you will live. The man might have thought, well, if I ask him about how, interpret, how I have eternal life, Jesus will say, oh, don't worry, you're a Jew. All Jews are saved. You don't have to worry about salvation. You are the physical offspring of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. You're in, pal. Don't worry about all this. But he didn't. Most Jews think that. We're the physical offspring of Abraham. We're in. Jesus gives him the law. Now, how many of you have done that? Someone wants to know about eternal life and you say, well, what does the law say? We would only quote the law to show people you've missed the mark. As Jesus has done. Well, the man says in verse 29, he says, but wishing, or in his mind, wishing to justify himself or to save face. Remember, there's a whole crowd around. Wishing to save face, we might say. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, he might have at this point expected Jesus to say, oh, your neighbors, you know, those people that live next door to you. It's your family. It's your friends. Who can't love them? Well, I mean, most of your family anyway. Right? <laughs> There's some members of the family that are just impossible to love, but uh, uh, let's just make a blanket statement. Who's my neighbor? And the Good Samaritan parable is Jesus' answer. Now, did the Good Samaritan, did this story that transpires in verses 30 to 37 actually happen? I'm one of those people that believes it did. I think it's a real account. I think that these are events that would have easily happened. I don't think Jesus just makes it up out of thin air, although he could have. So I'm looking at this parable, unlike other preachers that I've listened to and read, and, I, and I'm thinking it in terms of real people, not just concocted people. So to the question, the first question is, how do I have eternal life? The answer is, keep the law. The second question is, who's my neighbor? How am I supposed to love this neighbor? And Jesus replies in verse 30. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
and fell among robbers. Now, just first of all, Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 17 miles away, and it sits about 700 feet below sea level. So it's a steep decline for 17 miles. Uh, last week, I was in Jericho, was in Jerusalem as well. You know the, decl- the, the, the decline, you see all the, the hills. It's a rocky, craggy area. It's not a open, uh, like driving in the open plains. It's, there's rocks and, and hills, and it's a great place to hide out if you're a, a thief, a highwayman. Someone looking for someone to be passing along to, to rob them. And that's why Jesus uses this context. A man was going down from Jerusalem. So we don't know who this man is. We don't know if he's Jew or Gentile. But he's going down from Jerusalem, perhaps having worshipped there. Because you go up to Jerusalem, because it's up on a hill, on Mount Zion. Going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he did, he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So we see this man on the road. He's going to be a depiction of you and I. uh, Stripped, beaten, half dead. Laying there with no help uh, whatsoever. He's laying there and he's expecting someone to help him. In verse 31, by chance in Jesus' parable, a priest was going down on the road. And And when he saw him, stop right there. If you're hearing this for the first time, you're thinking a priest. Priest sees a, a battered and beaten man. Surely the priest is going to stop. The priest is the highest calling of mankind. The priest is the mediator between God and man. God over there on that door. Man over there on that door. The only way, which one did I say? God is over there. The only way for man to get to God is to go through the mediator who's the priest. And to do that, you had to bring an animal, a sacrifice. An animal that would be killed. The blood would pour out. Blood. Man is sinful. Did I put man over there? Man's over there. I don't mean to confuse you, but I'm the one confused, frankly. That fire alarm just totally did me in. (laughs) Man cannot get to God without a priest, so the priest makes a way. And this is ordained by God. The priest descended from the line, from the tribe, I should say, of Levi. You know your tribes? You know your commandments? You know your tribes? Reuben, firstborn. Simeon, secondborn. No one's helping me. Levi, the thirdborn, and the fourthborn, very good class. Those are the first four. They're the only ones that matter for our story right now. But that third tribe of Levi is where God drew the priests from. Moses was from Levi. His brother Aaron was from Levi. And so he took this tribe, this third tribe, this thirdborn son from Jacob, Levi, and he made it into a tribe. They became numerous. And all the men who descended from Levi were going to be servants in the temple of God. They, were, they had this high calling. They could not own land. They couldn't get jobs. They were to serve at the temple of God, serve God's people. From the lineage of Aaron and Moses, out of the tribe of Levi, came the priesthood. So they were not only from Levi, they descended from Aaron and the priesthood. So you've got priests and Levites, a high calling. They were the prophets. They were the preachers. Uh, they told people the good, what God's word said. And they mediated between God and man. We might liken them today to a pastor or someone that we hold in high regard. There's a man lying on the road. He's half dead. All of his clothes have been stripped from him. He's bleeding And what better, who better to come down the road than a priest? We would expect great things. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we're not told why. It's likewise a Levite also when he came to the place we saw him, passed by on the other side. These two top people that they have no jobs other than serving in the temple. And mind you, they're walking down from Jerusalem where they work at least two weeks out of the year, down from Jerusalem to to Jericho. They're on vacation now. They can't go get jobs. They don't own land. What else are they going to do? Well, we can only surmise. We know from Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, that a priest is told, don't go near a dead body. Don't touch a dead body. You'll become defiled. And there was a ritual that priests had to go through, as did a Levite, in order to become undefiled. Well, if you're not serving in the temple, it's not a big deal. You can certainly help. And I would say further that these men, I want you to, if you will, turn with me to Exodus 23, 4, and 5. Second book of the Bible, you can't miss it. Exodus 23, 4, and 5. 
<clears throat> just so you know, if you're an expert in the law, you're going to know these things. If you've just read the Bible, you're going to know these things. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Here's what it says. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Remember, his enemy. You're walking along, you see your enemy, his ox or donkey has wandered. You shall return it to him. Verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Look over at Leviticus 19, next book from Exodus. Leviticus 19. Perhaps this is the first time these pages have ever been turned in your Bible. They're sticking together. That ought to con- convict you. Leviticus 19.34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Why would the priest, in light of these passages, pass by a man in need? If helping someone's donkey, an enemy's donkey, is required in the law, how much more so a man? A person lying on the road beaten. Would we say that this priest loved God? It's hard to say that because we have got to put ourselves in that, in that, that same category. Would I? How many of you have passed by someone on the highway? Flat tire, broken down car, but you need to get somewhere. If you've got to stop and fix someone's fight, you're going to get all dirty, and you're trying to get to dinner for your, that you're late to or to your job or whatever it may be, and you're thinking, ah, this other car's behind me. They'll help. And the whole way you're cruising down the highway, you're... you're you put yourself on trial, and you're, you're giving yourself a break. Ah, it's okay. They're, ah, they're probably terrible people. Ah, they'll be all right. Ah, there's a gas station. It's like 10 miles away, but they'll be okay. You ever done that? My guess is that's what the priest is doing. Ah, if I touch him, I'm going to be ceremonially unclean. I'm going to have to go through a week through of, a week of, uh, of cleanliness and, and going through the, the, the stages of purity and ah, I'm going to lose money and time. Ah, there's a Levite back there. He'll help him. So he doesn't. Passes by. The one that had the most time, the one that could, says no, passes by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Now, the Levite might have seen the, the, the priest ahead of him. Well, if the priest didn't do it, I'm not going to help. So there's this trickle down. You ever done that? Well, if Lance didn't help, I'm not going to help. He's a preacher. Or someone else that you admire that, that you think should have done something good, they didn't. Or maybe someone said a foul word, and it was the preacher or something. Well, if the preacher can say a foul word, I can say two foul words on the golf course after hitting two bad shots. No. The priest actually made for a bad example, and the two people we expect the most to help pass by. Now, the people listening to the story, my guess at this point would be waiting for this next one is going to be some uh, wonderful layman from the Jewish, from the tribes of Israel, a Jew. But Jesus leaves them all speechless because the third one has nothing to do with what they think it's going to be. But a Samaritan, there would have been a collective gasp from the crowd. Why? Samaritans were hated by Jews. Why? Because they were considered to be half-breeds. Not just half-breeds, part Jew, part Gentile, but they were traitors to Judaism. Samaritans, dating back to 722 B.C., when the northern ten tribes went into captivity under the Assyrian Empire, they interbred with Gentiles. And they became part Jew and part Gentile. They became Samaritans. They were from the region of Samaria, which if you, if you think of your, your map of Israel, just a map of Israel, kind of like this, you've got Galilee on the top, you've got Samaria in the middle, which is today called the West Bank, 
and Judea in the south. Right here was where those ten tribes resided. And they had their own king. They had their own temple worship. Because after Solomon, they rejected the God of Israel. And so they interbred with these Gentiles. They became Samaritans. They rejoiced when the Jews in the south went into captivity in 586 B.C., And when the Jews came back 70 years later to rebuild their temple, the Samaritans said, hey, let us help. And the Jews said, don't want your help. We don't want your filthy hands building our sacred temple. So they hated each other. The Samaritans wrote their own Torah uh, called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which took the uh, various liberties and made it, you know, it's kind of just a Bible for a liberal. Let's make it say what we want it to say. They took the place of worship, which was supposed to be Jerusalem, and they put it on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Just had their own religion. Very similar to Judaism, but without all the Judaistic stuff. Well, to make matters worse, one man named John Hyrcanus, and I believe it's 170 B.C., went and destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim, further intensifying the hatred between the two groups. So they didn't like each other. Remember, James and John in the previous context says, just ask Jesus, can we call down fire? Hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on those crazy Samaritans? To which Jesus said, yeah, yeah, I'm tired of using my divine powers. You go ahead and do it. No, no, Jesus doesn't do that at all. And we know why later on, a year and a half, two years later, Philip the evangelist makes his way into Samaria and brings people to know Christ as their Savior, which is wonderful. But not at this point. A Samaritan. The priest and the Levite blew it. But the story Jesus gives, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. You ever feel compassion? It's one thing to feel compassion. My guess is that the Levite and the priest probably felt compassion too, although it doesn't say it. But there's a difference between feeling compassion and acting upon it, isn't there? Oh, poor thing. That's a shame. That's a little different than, poor thing, what can I do to help? That's what the Samaritan does. He comes upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring, not just dabbing, but pouring oil and wine on them. Wine would act as a natural antiseptic with the alcohol it contained. And oil was a, a way to bring healing to this wound. He, this man takes it in great measure and pours it all over the man's wounds. Here's what gets me. The priest and the Levite would have had these same things. They would have had wine. They would have had oil because they just came from the temple. And that's what's used in worship. Wine to pour on a drink offering. Oil also to anoint, to give as a sacrifice. It's worth something. These things are part of worship, wine and oil. The Samaritan uses the two things used for worship on another human being. The other two didn't. How about you? Today you've come to church. When you're done here, I will have preached for an hour from God's Word. You will be filled with God's Word. Hence, filled with God's Spirit. That's what happens when we're filled with God's Word. Filled with the Spirit. Perhaps you will have dropped a bit of money into the offering box as worship, as a sacrifice from what God has given you, just a portion. Perhaps you will have worked in the nursery or greeted people out front or prayed with someone in the hallways. You took worship, the time of prayer, the time of music, the time of listening to God's Word, the time of serving in Christ's church. But you go down to the local restaurant and you don't get treated right And so you withhold a good tip. You decide to let loose on a poor waiter or waitress or your spouse or your child or your neighbor when you get home because he blew his live oak junk into your driveway that's all over our driveways right now. You just decide to lose it. You don't take what you you had for worship here. You don't take 10,000 reasons that we sung 10,000 reasons and forever more that we're going to live with our God. You don't take that. You act like the priest and the Levite. You put that in your pocket and you do what you want. Unlike the Samaritan who uses what he just used for worship 
in his everyday life. That's what he does. And he goes to considerable expense by pouring it on this man's wounds. Putting him on his own beast. And then taking him to an inn. Now this shouldn't be thought of as a holiday inn. Um, inns in that day were nothing like. I mean, this, an inn in that day would make your typical Motel 6 look like the Ritz-Carlton. They weren't beautiful and lovely, but it was a place. There was some safety there. He could at least bleed in there and, and get, get better. He could begin to heal with what he'd gave, given, given him. And he took care of him there. And on the next day, so he spent the night there with him, he took, takes out two denarii. That's two days worth of wages. Now, imagine what you make. You know what you make in a month or in a year. Break it down to what you would make in a day, in two days. Two days wage this guy gives up for someone he's never met. The man probably couldn't even talk to him. He doesn't even know if the man's Jew or Gentile, the man that's been beat up. We typically know where people are from by the way they dress, the way they speak, what they say, their accent. This man can't even talk. He's half dead. His clothes have been stripped off of him. He's got blood all over him. He doesn't know anything about him. And yet he gives up two full days wage, not to mention the time he took to help him, not to mention the fact that he put himself in danger at those bandits who were around there, stopping in the road to help someone put him in greater danger. You see the sacrifice of what it means? You see why Jesus is telling the story? The man wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? Who exactly is my neighbor? Two denarii. That's uh, one commentator said, that's enough food. Two denarii for three weeks. Gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. So it's not like, hey, look, this is all I got. I've done my good deed for the day. God, did you notice what I did? Pat on the back, I'm leaving. Somebody else does. No, he's going to see it through to the end. I love that. Now, again, earlier, I don't know if this is a real story. I think it is. I think it's one of those stories that no one would know except the participants and the Lord God Almighty, who sees all things, who sees our good deeds, who sees what we do to honor Him. And Jesus has an opportunity to share this story. He doesn't give names. If, in fact, it really did happen. Verse 36, after telling the story, maybe there was a pause for effect. But he looked up at the scribe and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Pretty simple question. Can't miss this one, right? Not the way Jesus set it up. And the man said, the English text says, the one who showed mercy toward him. The Greek, however, says, the one who did this mercy with him. It's a very awkward phrase, but it captures it, doesn't it? The one who did this mercy. Mercy isn't a feeling. Oh, poor thing. Mercy is an action, folks. It's what you do. It's like love. It's a verb. Did the man come across him? This, did the Samaritan come across the beaten man and say, I love you, man. I'm just so given to love my fellow man. He doesn't say that. There's nothing here that's emotional. It's compassion for another human being that's hurting, that needs help, and a willingness to sacrifice for such. He did mercy with him. He didn't just feel it. It's one thing to feel it. It's another thing altogether to do it. The one who did the mercy with him. And Jesus, there you have your answer there, brother. Go and do the same. Go and do the same. What's the question? How do I have eternal life? Do the law. You know the answer, scribe. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Who's my neighbor? He doesn't say, what if I can't do that? Then Jesus could have launched into, well, if you can't do it, then you're just like every other human being on this planet. Let me introduce you to me. Follow me. I'm going to make a sacrifice for your sins in a few months. Trust in me and that blood you see flowing down from my body on that cross. That's going to wash your sins away. But the man isn't getting it. You don't need Jesus until you understand you are a sinner. I shouldn't say you don't need Jesus. You're not going to feel your need for Jesus. Until you recognize, Jesus, what, if I, what do I do if I can't love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? I can't do that. 
And what if I do further? I can love my mom and dad. I can love my spouse and my children. I can love the people that live next door to me. But a Samaritan? How am I supposed to love that person, Jesus? He didn't say that. We don't know what happened to him. But that's what we say. If you're honest with yourself, you do not love God. Not enough. Not the way he demands. Not what he commands of us. You don't, neither do I. I do not love him with all of that. Oh, sometimes I feel pretty, pretty loving. And there's never a day that goes by that I don't, I don't tell God multiple times that I love him. I find it to be very therapeutic to tell God that I love him. And the more I tell him, the more I continue to tell him. But the more I tell him, the more I think he's got a smirk on his face. Is that right, Lance? You really love me? You're lying to yourself if you think you love me with all. No, I don't think I do, Lord. I fall short of that. Will you show mercy? And Lord, my neighbor, I I can love my wife and I can love my children. They're easy. I can even love my next door neighbor, Renee, and his wife and children. They're easy to love. I love my neighbor on the right side and the left side. They're easy. They're nice people. We do things for each other. But I don't love everybody. I flew back 10 hours, in addition to another five hours this past week, from Jordan to Frankfurt, from Frankfurt to Houston. And I had done it the week prior. And I saw lots of people in there that I did not love on that airplane. (laughs) So did everyone I was around. People that take up too much space. People that stink. People that don't cover their mouth when they cough. People that talk too loud. And I had to tell myself, that is a person made in the image of God. You're going to go tell people this next week, Lance, to love their neighbor, and you're having the feelings toward that person you're having? You in trouble, boy. Or, what about in the days I get up? How many of you like to be interrupted? Does anyone here at the church today like to be interrupted? I do, Lance. How many of you like when you get up in the morning and you've got a mindset, I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to get ready, I'm going to go to my job, I'm going to go sit in my office, and I've got things to do. I've got emails to write, I've got proposals to do, I've got things to do. We all have that. Maybe you don't go to an office, you've got things to do in your home, home office or at your home, whatever it may be. You've got things to do. Well, I'm that person, and I'm very driven that way. And I walk through the door, and sometimes I get what? Interrupted. But it begins with my wife. God bless that woman. She is so incredible. She has more questions than she has answers. And she reminds me, remember, I too am one of your sheep, Lance. Yes, dear. Yes, you are. And then she gave me a figurine of a sheep to remember I am one of your sheep. She asks really good questions, though. You know, that's code for questions I can't answer. The good questions are the ones I can't answer. Or I come to church, there's somebody waiting. There's a new email that demands my attention. There's a demanding text that demands my attention. And I always say the same thing. Really, Lord? I came here to work on the passage so that I can preach on Wednesday, and then I got to get ready for Sunday? And you never take a break from Wednesdays or Sundays. You keep them coming. Every single week they come around. Really, Lord, another interruption? Yes, Lance, another interruption. Those are my neighbors. Oh, I'm the priest. I want to walk by. Somebody can do that. Somebody else can handle that. I don't have time for that. That takes time. I don't have time. You relating to me? Or are you going to use what I just confessed to you against me? Oh, Lance runs from people. So do you. I am not better than you. I am not the priest here. I'm a wretched sinner. Why do you think I call you wretched sinners? Trying to make myself feel better because I am one. We are in desperate need of the mercy that God gives. Who was it Jesus said? Who do you think proved to be a neighbor? The man who did mercy with him. Folks, if you want to know whether you love God, love his people. I don't mean love Christians, love atheists, 
Love those Mormons that knock on your door who say things that are blasphemous and the Jehovah's Witnesses who tell you Jesus isn't God and offend you. Love those Muslims. Don't shake your finger at them necessarily and say, I love you by telling you the truth. You can do that, but there's nothing here about I love you, man. I love you. Let's embrace. Love is a verb. It's a verb in your marriage. I promise you if you're married or if you're getting married, you're going to fall out of love with your spouse multiple times over the course of your marriage. And you're going to come to me or a counselor and you're going to say, I just don't love her anymore. And if a counselor is worth his or her salt, he's going to say, okay, now go home and love your spouse. What? Yeah, love is a verb. It's not a feeling. Feelings go away. Feelings come and go. Love is a verb. Do you think that God has some sort of affection towards us because we're such good people? God, I love that Lance. He's so lovable. No. Or you, you sweet people. Some of you who are sweet, you know you're sweet. You don't like to advertise it. From time to time, you'll tell people, I have a really good heart. You are lying to yourself. Your heart reeks of deadness. And every time you think you're pretty good, you just blow out more of that deadness. You are not a good person. You are not kind. You do kind acts. You can be good in the eyes of people. But folks, we demand God's mercy. That's that's all we have. And the mercy we have received from God, Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. My guess is that man took off because Jesus didn't finish it. So let me just finish it. It's in your bulletin. God's law, love God and love others. You can't do it. Just two laws to sum up all of them. You can't do them. We're in trouble. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yes? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And worse, the wages of sin is death. That's why we're going to die. You don't even have to be born to sin in order to die. That's why babies sometimes die. They didn't sin, but they were born in sin. We are all born sinners, conceived in sin, and we die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus just revealed this to this man. So how can we have eternal life? I'm in 1D on your outline. Romans 10, 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's not just the end of the law. He is the end of the law to those who believe. Those laws are gone for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we stand before God Almighty, He doesn't break out the law. He sees the blood of Jesus. (laughs) Did you hear what I just said? Or are you just so dull that that is not the greatest thing you ever heard? Some of you are going, wait, what? What did he say? Christ is the end of the law. My son, my son, why are you striving? As Keith Green once sang, you can't add one single thing to what Jesus has done for you. He did it all. He did it all while he was dying. Christ is the end of the law. Paul continues in Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did What you and I couldn't do. How we could not attain to the law. God did. How did he do that? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God became like you and me. Flesh. And he lived his life without sinning. So that you and I could connect ourselves to him by faith. And have his victory. That's the only way you get it. He did what we can't do. How can I have that? By connecting yourself to him. Straight line to faith. I believe in him. And then he died on the cross to take our death. Because remember the wages of sin is death. So what does the law do? Well the law that we read today. That summarizes the entire law. God's law leads us to Christ. Christ. 
so that we may be justified by faith. Not justified by keeping the law, none of us can. So what do I do? Well, that's easy. Thank you for asking. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. What? Is that it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. No, I'm not waiting for hallelujahs. I'm just waiting for you to sit in awe over how simple that is. You mean I don't have to do anything? Nope. I don't have to give anything? Nope. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. That's what it says, does it not? Is there anything to add? Number one, C2, subsection two. God made his own son who knew no sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You want to know whether you love God? Next person you drive by in need, you don't have to feel compassion. Stop and help them. You don't ever have to like them. It could be someone you know that is, has a complete different worldview than you. Someone who is politically totally unaligned with you. Who believes in all the things you stand against. But they're in need. Maybe it's a flat tire. Maybe you're behind them in the grocery line and they forgot their credit card or their checkbook. And you step forward, I'll take care of that for you. Let me stop over and help you with your tire. I'm going to be late, but it's all right. I can do that. The way you treat others, just let that be the litmus test for how you love God. How we love God is how we treat others. How we treat others is how we love God. I know you fall short just like me. But Jesus, did, did he not just say, go and do likewise? The Good Samaritan isn't just about doing good deeds. It's about answering the question, who has eternal life? It's those who keep the law. No one can keep the law. So what do I do? Jesus has given us an example. Here's what you do. You love God for how he saved you? Go serve God. Because you see, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is just one side of the coin. Flip that coin over. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ... You've become a transformed being. You've moved from darkness to light. All you want to do is serve Christ. But Christ isn't here to serve, is he? No, there's a lot of people, though. You sit back and you go, but I don't like people, Lance. Okay. I understand. I've heard people say that. I've said that before. What's wrong with this world? People. Why is my job so hard? People. If all people would go away, I could just be fine. No, you're one of those people. People aren't the problem. You're the problem. God has given us each other to love, to serve, in order to serve Him. When Jesus returns, Matthew chapter 25, those who survive the tribulation time period. This is a time period whereby at the end of the seven years, people have died they have been slaughtered. There are natural disasters. The earth is opening up. People are falling in. The, the sky is dropping 100-pound um, hail bombs. There's nuclear war all over the planet. People are in need. Some people have prepared for it. They've stockpiled. They've got food. They're living underground. They know about the people that need help, but they don't help them. And so when Jesus returns, he faces those who are still alive. And he says, um, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was sick, you didn't help me. When I was in jail, you didn't come visit me. And the people scratch their heads and they say, when did that happen, Jesus? And his answer, to the extent that you didn't help these little ones of mine, you didn't help me. And then he commends those who did. How do you love Jesus? By loving his people. Just Christians? Not according to this parable. Everyone made in the image of God. Everyone made in the image of God. Whether they smell bad, look bad, taste bad, or whatever. 
They are made in the image of God. You want to know how to love God? Love them. Let's pray. Lord, we are imperfect as if we need to tell you that. But we need to tell ourselves that. That we are sinners. We've fallen short of your standard. Hence, we are in need. I pray that everyone here in the vicinity of hearing my voice and every voice of every pastor or preacher who preaches it, that the way to be saved from our, our sin is to receive you. If we can't do what you've demanded, then we receive you who did what we cannot do. May we trust in you, your faith. If there be one here today or many here today who have not done so, let this be the day. Through this well-known parable, they reach out, receive you by faith because Lord, we are in trouble. We cannot attain to your law. In your grace, in your mercy, your mercy you passed our sin over and in your grace you've given us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bring us to you, draw us near to you. Those who never have, drink, bring them for the first time. And those of us who have, bring us again. Draw us near to you, Lord. This we pray, desperately and humbly, in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you go, all of you, you good Samaritans. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.